Thank you. Um, first of all, of course, I'd like to thank Rabbi Krauss and the Murskis and Ari and everybody else who came this evening. When I came to the States uh, for this tour, lecture tour, I actually arrived and went into the middle of Manhattan and everybody was in green. I thought this was a new uh, uh, unknown side effect of jet lag. I, I knew about uh, when, you know, I'm very ecumenical. I know when Greek Orthodox Christmas is, when Ramadan is. I had no idea when St. Patrick's Day was until that experience. But it reminded me of an old Jewish story. And the story is that a Jew enters a bar in Belfast and a hand lands on his shoulder and the heavy voice from behind him says, Catholic or Protestant? And of course he says, Jew. And the voice from behind him says, I, but are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? <laughs> so as somebody writing about the settlements for the last several years, when I would tell people in Israel that this is what I was doing, they would ask me if I was writing about this from the left or the right. And I'd say, actually, I'm doing an old-fashioned objective history based on the documents. And then the question always came, yes, but are you objectively on the right or objectively on the left? So uh, yes, this is an old fact. I'm going to talk about a piece of old-fashioned history here based on factual material. And yes, I also think there are some political implications to it, and I'll discuss both of those. Simply starting with the fact that the election which was just held represented a huge political shift in Israel. If for many years the political split in Israel almost even had been between those who said <clears throat> that Israel should not give up any land whatsoever and those who said it should give up at least part of the West Bank and at least some of the settlements. This time, the real debate was how much land to give up and how many of the settlements, how to do it, whether unilaterally or by agreement, rather than whether to do it. And when the votes were actually counted, at least 70 out of 120 of the Knesset members, and probably more, support a pullout from a significant part of the West Bank and a significant number of settlements. The debate continues on how to do it, <clears throat> whether it's possible to reach an agreement with the Palestinians or whether Israel should withdraw unilaterally or not. But we've essentially reached the point where the major political question in Israel is not whether to get out, but how to get out. And that is, in one way, a definition of a quagmire. Now, I think in a American audience, I don't have to say anything more to define a quagmire at this stage, but that is what the, the West Bank has and, and the settlement enterprise has become in many ways in Israel. Of course, a quagmire raises a second question, which is how did we get into it, both simply out of curiosity and because maybe there are some implications of that for the getting out. Uh, and that is a subject that I set out to explore in this book, and I will talk briefly about this evening. Partly because of the political significance, I wanted to understand that story, partly because simply it's an amazing story about human beings. And as I was working on the story, what I realized that was most striking about it was that it, it, it's in many ways a tragic story because it's a story about the people who created the state of Israel, uh, the leaders of Israel in 1967 at the end of the Six-Day War <coughs> were for all practical purposes, the same people who had founded the State of Israel 20 years before. In fact, somebody once did a comparison of the average age of the Knesset in 1949 and in 1969 and discovered that it had gone up by exactly 20 years in that period, um, which didn't make people particularly old because the age of the people who created the state at the time it was created was remarkably young. But the fact is that these were the people who created the State of Israel, and now 
in creating the settlements without realizing it, they began to do things which actually took the state apart, which started removing bricks from the structure that they had built themselves. They had made the rather remarkable and difficult transition from a revolution to an institution, from a cause or a movement to a state. Uh, they had done it much better than almost any other country which became independent during that period, as over 100 countries did. But the settlement enterprise in many ways reflected the taking apart of the state structure, a move, an attempt to relive their youth to be revolutionaries again, which in turn took apart much of, of what they had built. And I'll try to explain that. One of the first qualities of a state, of course, is having a border. A state is uh, power held by a particular government within particular borders. If you look at the map of the state of Israel as it is published in Israel, almost all maps come from the Israeli government, you will not find the green line, which is the pre-1967 boundary between Israel and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. It's not there. Uh, and that is also the border between sovereign Israel and the areas that are under military occupation, according to Israeli law, that are administered by the defense ministry and the army. So that's a very significant line, and you can't see it. And I came to Israel in 1977, and I would ask people, where did the line go? And they'd say, well, it, it probably disappeared when the Likud, when the right, was elected to power in 1977. I knew that wasn't true, because in college I had seen maps earlier of that, that Israel, that didn't have the line. But in any case, while I was working on the book, I was going through the correspondence in an archive of Yigal alone. Now, Yigal alone, for those of you for whom the name only slightly rings, was before the creation of the State of Israel, he was the uh, commander of the Palmach underground, the pre-state Palmach underground, which was the nucleus from which the Israeli army grew. The Palmach underground was based in a very left-wing movement called the United Kibbutz Movement. Some people referred to it as the Red Army of the United Kibbutz. <clears throat> and at the age of 30, alone became a general in the Israeli army. It was the commander of the Southern Front during the War of Independence, was considered a brilliant general. Shortly after that, David Ben-Gurion purged him from the army because Alon's political party was pro-Soviet, and Ben-Gurion was very concerned about having pro-Soviet generals, which was not actually so surprising since this was very soon after uh, the Soviets took over Czechoslovakia, for instance. So in any case, he became a politician. His party eventually broke with Moscow, and in 1967, he was the Minister of Labor. And his letters are a mess. I mean, they're sorted only by month, which is very unusual for office files. And uh, so you have the letter from the nut in Kiryat Shmona who wants to know why the labor minister hasn't personally gotten him a job. And next to that is a letter from the foreign secretary of the United Kingdom. And it's all just a mishmash together. And in among those letters from October 30th, 1967, which is to say less than five months after the Six-Day War, is a letter on a first-name basis to the head of the map-making department, which by a quirk was part of the labor ministry. And the letter says, Dear Alistair, from today onward, the line will not appear on the map. And with that, the line disappeared from the map. So bored school kids looking up at the wall when they can't follow what the teacher is saying will see a map of Israel in which Tel Aviv and Hebron are in the same uh, political entity. Now, 
in practical terms, the line is still there because one side of the line is, is as I said, is sovereign Israel and one side isn't. But you don't see it on the map. The, the green line became in Israel something akin to sex in Victorian England. Uh, you don't talk about it too much. You certainly don't show it to the children, and yet it's extremely important for life. And <clears throat> if you talk about it too much, or at least until recently, in public, it, it sort of defines you as being one of those artsy weird types, not somebody that you know, necessarily would be invited over for a family dinner. Uh, but it remains, as I said, very significant. It's so significant that when my daughter asked her high school geography teacher where was the green line on the map he handed out, he became very uncomfortable. So the line actually disappeared within a short time after the 67 war. But what was more important than the line on the map was the line on the ground. Because what the settlements have done is that they've actually physically blurred the difference between Israel and the occupied territories. And again, if you ask Israelis when this happened, uh, you'll get a lot of different answers. I was told, doing my trivia test while working on the book, it happened in 1977 when Likud came to power. It happened in 1975. Some people told me there was a huge confrontation in 1975 between the new Gush Emunim movement, which was a movement of young, radical, orthodox Israelis, radically right-wing, who uh, had a theology that said that the creation of the State of Israel and the 1967 war were signs that God was bringing messianic redemption, holding on to redeemed land, as they referred to the West Bank, they would call it Judea and Samaria, was part of God's plan. And to get on board with God's plan, you were supposed to settle that land. The first government of Yitzhak Rabin had a policy that said that settlement was allowed in unpopulated areas of the West Bank, which Israel would keep. This was actually a plan designed by Yigal alone. It was known as the Alone Plan. But the, the populated areas Israel would give up in return for peace. So Gush Emunim set out to settle in the areas where settlement was not allowed in order to force the government's hand. And there was a huge confrontation, and the government backed down. Rabin's government backed down and allowed the settlers to stay. And because of that very public confrontation, that's when most people, the largest number of people would tell you that settlement began. There's people who also remember that in 1968 at Pesach, uh, a rabbi named Moshe Levinger took some of his followers and they stayed in a hotel in Hebron in the West Bank, West Bank City for Passover, and then they refused to leave. And again, the government let them stay. And the real wonks, the, the people with the memory for politics equivalent to, the, to the, the kind of person who would remember 1948 baseball scores, will tell you that, that in 1967, in September, the children of Kvartzion reestablished the kibbutz of Kvartzion. Kvartzion was a kibbutz between Bethlehem and Hebron. It was overrun by Arab forces the day before the state of Israel was established. All of the male members of the kibbutz who were there defending it were massacred. And in 1967, right after the war, their children asked the government for permission to go back and were allowed to do so. If you, and it was an orthodox kibbutz. So if you follow this line of events that sticks in people's memory, you have a line of a ongoing confrontation between the right and particularly the religious right and moderate, uh, even dovish left-wing governments. And in fact, I confess that when I wrote the proposal for my book, that's what it looked like. Now we will tell what actually happened. <laughs> okay, that was all the introduction, so you know what, what the presumption is. If we go all the way back to June 19, 1967, this is a week after the Six-Day War ended, and the Six-Day War was a complete accident. It was certainly not planned by Israel. Israeli military intelligence said as late as April of 1967 that war wouldn't be expected for at least a number of years to come with the Arabs because they were completely militarily unprepared 
for war. Their tank crews didn't know how to operate their tanks. It, there was no chance that they would go to war. And in fact, I don't think the Arabs were actually planning to go war, to war either. I think they expected to make some muscles to show off in front of each other, but brinkmanship led into the abyss. War broke out. Defense Minister Moshe Dayan sent the troops further than the cabinet had approved. The generals went further than Dayan had approved. Sometimes the majors went further than the generals had approved. War is something that does not follow rules once it begins. And at the end of the war, Israel held the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Gaza Strip. And there was no strategy for which this, was designed, this, this wasn't the fulfillment of any strategic goal. The goal had to be assigned after the fact. So the cabinet sat down on the same June 19th to decide what to do. And after a long debate, there was a consensus that Israel would offer to give back the Golan Heights and the Sinai Peninsula virtually to the international boundary in return for a full, formal, signed peace with Egypt and Syria. And that proposal was passed on to the US, to the Johnson administration, and from there to uh, Syria and Egypt, who rejected it. They were not willing to make a formal peace with Israel. At the same time, the June 19th resolution didn't say anything about the West Bank, because people, the, the, the cabinet ministers could not reach a decision on it. There were proposals even be, before the war ended, and, and this discussion within the government actually lasted all summer. There were secret committees and, and meetings of the top uh, diplomats and generals and spies on what to do. And one of the proposals that came right out after the war was to turn the West Bank into a Palestinian state. That was rejected because it was assumed that the Palestinian state would actually be connected in some way to Israel, and that would be regarded in the world as a colonial entity, like the protectorates that Britain used to run in India. And they, people said, you know, the age of colonialism is over. We can't do this. There was a proposal to give back some or most of it to Jordan because it was recognized and written about in these papers that if Israel held on to the West Bank, if it annexed it, you would rapidly have a binational state. You'd no longer have a Jewish state. There would be almost as many Arabs as Jews, and the Arab population was growing more quickly. If you ruled it without annexing it, then again, that would be seen as colonialism. And there were also proposals to annex all or most of the West Bank. And there were proposals made of why this would be okay. For instance, that all of American Jewry was about to make Aliyah in the wake of the war. And that, you know, I, I know this sounds very funny, but there's actually a tragic element behind it because the proponents of this view were believers in what was called the whole land of Israel. And when this belief developed in the 1920s and 1930s, people were expecting three million Jews to make Aliyah from Poland. And the reason that those Jews didn't come was for the most part that they couldn't get in. So there was, in, in, the, in the vision of all these Jews making Aliyah in the wake of the war, there was in some way a, um, a repression of the memory of what had happened, why those Jews weren't available to make Aliyah. There was, there, there was a, a part of the, of the difficulty of dealing with the Holocaust. In any case, the person who best summed up the problem was Prime Minister Levi Eshkol, a man who was known for his really the truly grand scale of his indecision. Uh, Eshkol himself was proud of saying that he could argue any argument from, for one hour from one side and then for another hour from the opposite side. I used to think that this was a joke told about him, but it turns out it was told by him that when asked whether to order coffee or tea, he would say half and half. So Eshkol said after the war, the problem is that with the war we got a wonderful dowry, but with the dowry comes a bride. 
And the dowry, of course, was the land, and the bride was the people there, and Eshkol himself was undecided. Why would you want to hold on to it if there were all these problems? Well, for one thing, uh, there was a security issue. The war had, even though Israel had won, had reminded people how vulnerable it was, and there was an argument that holding on to part or all the territory would give Israel depth in the case of an Arab invasion. There was also the biblical argument. These were places that were spoken of in the Bible, and that argument, I have to stress, was not one restricted to Orthodox Jews. A friend of mine who's whose father was a secular left-wing Knesset member in 1967, tells of how her mother, uh, who apparently had more free time that summer, used to take her on trips around the West Bank, Bible in hand, reading out verses about what happened in each place, because the Bible is taught in Israel, even in secular schools, is national history. And that, you know, reaching places like Hebron, Bethlehem, Beit El, the places uh, spoken of in the Bible had tremendous excitement for people. And one more reason is which only hit me as I was doing the research for the book, is the people who led Israel had grown up in mandatory Palestine when there had been no line running through that land. They had hiked these areas as kids in youth movements. This was part of the landscape of their youth. And they had either accepted or opposed, but in one way or another, put up with the division of the land in 1948. But now they were being asked to do it again, and that was a difficult thing to agree to the second time. Uh, you know, there were people in the sort of situation of people who'd found their old high school girlfriend or boyfriend, and now they're into, okay, leave again, right? It, it was a very painful thing. So no decision was made. Um, meanwhile, on that same June 19th, an order went out from an Israeli top officer in the Golan Heights to other military officers saying, be prepared for a visit of the Jewish Agency Settlement Department's representative who's going to survey the area for settlement. So on the same day, the government is offering to give up this land, and the Jewish Agency, which is a quasi-governmental body, is getting ready to survey it for settlement. Alone said in an interview before his death that a government is nothing but a confederation of ministries. It is not a monolithic body, and this is a proof of that. Again, the question comes up, why would somebody want to settle there? And in fact, activists from Galilee Kibbutzim were already getting ready to establish a kibbutz in the Golan Heights without the government's knowledge. One reason, again, was security. The Syrians had bombarded Israeli farming communities from the Golan Heights. One reason was belief that this was Jewish land. The activists who were getting organized to do this came from a movement that I mentioned called the United Kibbutz. The United Kibbutz was you could say, left of the communists, because they didn't believe in the Soviet style of communism with a state. They believed in creating socialism one community at a time, one communal farming settlement, kibbutz at a time, that would then be joined together in sort of a commune of kibbutzim, and that would create the socialist life for the Jews in their homeland. And they also believed in the, great, in the whole land of Israel, which included what we now call southern Lebanon, the Golan, large parts of Jordan. They saw all of this as part of the land of Israel. And as far as they were concerned, the borders of mandatory Palestine and certainly of Israel were an imperialist imposition. It was like the demarcation line in North Korea. And the United Kibbutz had supported North Korea during the Korean War. If the combination, which is the key, if the combination of leftism and nationalism sounds strange in a Western context, it makes perfect sense in a third world context. It's, you know, they got along, they would have gotten along fine with Ho Chi Minh, for instance, or Castro, you know, who were both nationalists and uh, Marxists. So they got organized, and on July 16th, 1967, five weeks after the Six Day War, 
a 25-year-old man climbed out of a jeep at the army base, the abandoned Syrian army base of Aleka in the uh, Golan Heights, carrying his sleeping bag, and became the first Israeli settler in occupied territory. And in the weeks that followed, more young kibbutz young people came and joined him. Uh, they were people back from the war, from reserve duty, or from regular army service, unable to fit back into civilian life, looking for something to do, sitting around the officer's swimming pool at night, playing the guitar, collecting abandoned Syrian cattle during the day, and also collecting money from Alone's labor ministry because Alone had a work projects budget for the unemployed, and they were listed as doing the work for the unemployed. They didn't actually do it. There was one accountant sent by an older kibbutz, to, and when he found out that part of his job was falsifying the forms every night, he went home, but they found somebody else to do it. And everybody else, everybody knew I mean, alone, the kibbutznikim all knew what was going on. They were using the methods that, as a revolutionary movement, the founders of kibbutzim had used in the 30s and the 40s to extend one acre at a time the area under Jewish control. And the methods seemed very natural. And certainly for somebody like Alone, who had grown up in that period, it seemed natural. The leading figure on the new kibbutz was somebody who had been 13 in 1948 and felt, felt that he'd missed it. You know, he'd been born just a little bit too late, and here was a chance to get back into the heroic period, except that when you look at somebody like Alone, he was, in a sense, the Peter Sellers figure here. He was playing all the roles. He was the young revolutionary and the government minister at the same time. They were using the methods of a revolution, but now it was really against the policy of a Jewish state. And so that's what I mean about the fact that there was a process of taking the bricks out of the structure. The process continued later that summer when the Arab leaders got together in Khartoum in the Sudan and to decide what they were going to do about the war. And they came out with a resolution which has many, many meanings. But the meaning that mattered to Israel was the part that said that there would be no negotiations, no recognition, and no peace with Israel. And for Israeli leaders, that statement was a public rejection of the secret offer they had made. And at that point, Eshkol finally made up his mind. And he'd already been dithering in his inimitable fashion about reestablishing kibbutz Kvartzion. He decided to go ahead with it. And he, uh, he asked the opinion of the legal advisor, the legal counsel, the foreign ministry, if this, were permissible, if this would be permissible under international law. The legal advisor was a man named Theodore Mayrone. He was a child Holocaust survivor who had arrived in Palestine after the war. He hadn't gone to high school because he'd been in a labor camp. Within 10 years, he had completed his doctorate in international law at Harvard, done a postdoc at Cambridge, and come back to join the Foreign Service. He was a brilliant young guy. By the way, later on, he became a professor at New York University and is today on the International Court for the former Yugoslavia. So if you had to get together a minion of the world's experts on, internet, on the law of war, he would certainly be part of that body. In any case, he was then the legal counsel, and he wrote back a response that said, uh, settling civilians in the administered territories contravenes the explicit provisions of the Fourth Geneva Convention. That is, it's illegal. But he left a loophole. The loophole said that you could establish army bases. So Eshkol declared that Kvartzion would be an army base. Uh, it would be attached to a branch of the army called Nachal, which sets up outposts where the soldiers both do military duty and farm. At this point, Eshkol himself was treating international law as that colonial power, and he was acting like the young revolutionary taking a bypass road around the law. 
So the process of taking things apart unnoticed was going on. I want to stress there was no decision to keep the whole West Bank. It was a little bit at a time. They, didn't, they couldn't reach a decision on the whole West Bank, but he could get a decision on reestablishing Kvartzion. And that's how the process of settlement began without any strategic decision, without any ability to come to a decision, with little teeny steps that led one after another that continued to blur the borders and to blur the law. And the one problem that the government had, the labor leaders in particular had, well, before I get to that, there was, there's the question of a problem that didn't really come up, which was the United States. What, what was the United States do, doing during all of this? Um, the answer is the United States was unequivocally opposed to settlement and completely distracted. Uh, as, as Hal Saunders, who was then on the National Security Council, the, the Middle East man on the National Security Council for the Johnson administration told me, you have to remember that the Johnson administration had a problem elsewhere on the globe. Uh, I think that they have special classes, understatement one, understatement two, and so forth, when you study for jobs like that. But the point was that the U.S. had the position that peace had to be established on the basis of the pre-war lines, it told Israel that it opposed Kvartzion and then accepted the explanation that this was military because that meant they could go back to worrying about the big problem. By the next spring, a diplomat in the embassy in Tel Aviv was writing, it looks like these settlements are really civilian. They're staying there. The answer came back from the State Department, go tell the foreign ministry that we regard this as a violation of the Geneva Accords. But the issue wasn't pressed because there was that little problem elsewhere in the globe. And when Nixon and Kissinger came to power, uh, they certainly didn't press the issue because even more than Johnson, they saw the world in Cold War terms. Israel and the Arabs were pawns in the Cold War. They were not local problems. And so all the local issues were pushed to the side, certainly until uh, Vietnam was over, really until the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which turned into a superpower confrontation. So that qualified as Cold War stuff. And they were also out of Vietnam, and Kissinger began his famous shuttle diplomacy at that point. The conclusion from this is that when the United States is involved someplace else in a quagmire, and when it is seeing the whole world as a glo one global conflict, it is unlikely to get involved in Israeli-Arab peace negotiations. I mention this purely as a historical point. It has nothing to do with the present, <laughs> of course. Uh, but... After the 73 war, Kissinger began his shuttle diplomacy, trying to reach agreements between Israel and Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. And this is where the last stage I will describe happened, because at this point, the confrontation began, began between religious and secular settlers, because the government had had a hard time getting their own kids involved in the settlement effort, despite that first kibbutz in the Golan. Most of the young people who had grown up in Israel between 48 and 67 were really not that interested in settling over the Green Line. Creating new kibbutzim was not their thing. That had happened in a different time. That was their parents' music, not theirs. And they didn't sign up. And there was all, all through the documents I looked at, there's a complaint about a lack of manpower. Uh, movements, uh, kibbutz and moshav movements would sign up for a piece of land and then not be able to find any young people who were willing to settle there because you don't start uh, new kibbutzim with officials in their 50s. You start them with young people in their 20s and they weren't available. But there were religious young people who were willing to go for two reasons. One was that religious Israelis, religious Zionist Israelis had always been the sidekicks. They had 12 kibbutzim, the secular had 
220 kibbutzim. They, uh, a few of them had fought in the Palmach. At their youth movement meetings, they sang songs from the other movements. And this was their chance to take the lead, to be the vanguard, and they leapt at it, and they had an ideology that justified it. And when the Rabin government started talking about giving up some of the land they thought should be settled, the confrontation between this new organization, Gushumunim, and the secular government began. And that was also where settlement became much more public and became imprinted on people's mind as a confrontation between the religious movements and the secular governments. I'm not going to try to go through the entire rest of the history of settlement. I will say that very early on, there were lots of people who said, this isn't going to work, uh, particularly because of the reason I mentioned, because of the demographics, because the Arab population was growing faster than the Jews. In 1972, the laborers' finance minister stood up at a later Labor Party meeting, a couple hundred members of the Central Committee, everything was the Politburo and the Central Committee and so forth in the Labor Party, and he said, look, he sort of spoke like the high school teacher who was mad that the kids hadn't done their homework. He said, this is compound interest. Birth rates are just like compound interest. You were supposed to learn compound interest in elementary school, do the figures. Sapir walked around with a little black notebook in his pocket with all of the numbers that he liked. And I'm not talking about numbers of girlfriends. All, somebody told him an interesting number. He wrote it down in his little notebook. And he said, just do the compound interest. When Israel is 50 years old, 48% of the population between the Mediterranean and the Jordan is going to be Arab. And if there's massive immigration, like some of you are talking about, it'll be 40%. Sapir died in 1998. After massive immigration from the Soviet Union, the percentage was 44%. There were some people who could not do compound interest, but by the beginning of this century, many of the people who had been on the right once were noticing that, in fact, the Arab population was approaching that of the Jewish population. And that's where you had a switch among people like Ehud Olmert and Ariel Sharon, who had always believed in keeping all the land, suddenly started talking about giving land back. They couldn't do compound interest, but they could count. And now they saw the problem. And that is what redefined Israeli politics in the last three years. The problem is that there are now a quarter of a million Israelis living in the West Bank. So the difficulty for Israel, the threat to, in, in that original cabinet meeting in 1967, one of the critics of holding the West Bank said, if we keep the West Bank, it's the end of the Zionist enterprise because there won't be a Jewish state. Today, that has become conventional wisdom, but there's a quarter of a million Israelis living in the West Bank. So now the problem being faced by the new government of Israel when it is finally the coalition you know, negotiations work themselves out and the new government is installed will be how do you pull back? How do you keep the board, set borders for the state of Israel such that there is a clear Jewish majority so that it can be both democratic and Jewish and solve the problem of all the people who are living there? How do you get out of the quagmire? With that, I'll end. Thank you very much, and I'll be um, willing to take some questions. I just want to um, uh, make a note that somebody who introduced me someplace else did about questions. Um, questions are one sentence uh, <laughs> statement. They end with a question mark. And uh, they usually begin with who, why, when, where. They don't begin with do you think that. Um, I learned this from a wonderful rabbi who hosted me a week ago. And I think that that, that should be a very important part of any question session. So I'm happy to take a few questions and happy to answer more questions afterwards on a personal basis. And thank you very much for your patience. Yes. How do you end the quagmire? Oh boy, that's hard. Um, How do you end the quagmire? 
do you end the quagmire? Um, I think that eventually, is my own feeling is that eventually Israel is going to have to evacuate at least the great majority of those settlers from the territories. I do not underestimate how difficult that will be. Uh, the problem is not economic, because the economic problem can be solved. Israel absorbed one million immigrants during uh, the 1990s. And those were immigrants who, unlike the settlers, did not know Hebrew and did not have jobs inside of Israel. So it would be a difficult job in practical terms to reabsorb the, immigrants, uh, the settlers, but it could be done. The big problem is that the settlers who live deepest into the territories are usually the ones who are most ideological, most committed to staying there, for whom living there is tied up in what they see as the meaning of life. And the psychological and the social crisis of moving those people will be very difficult. So, I mean, where I acknowledge the, the serious problem is, is how to, in a sense, negotiate with those people, how to give most of them at least the feeling that by moving back into the state of Israel that they are really serving the ideal of serving the state of Israel and to reduce their sense that they have been uh, betrayed by this move. And I, I acknowledge that that will be a very difficult task. However, without doing that, we will not be able to separate ourselves either from the demographic problem or find any way of reaching a reconciliation with the Palestinians. Because in the long term, as I see it, the most essential thing to do to guarantee the survival of the Jewish state is to come to terms also with having a Palestinian state next to us, to have our state have clear borders and a clear Jewish majority and clear rule of law, not decisions on our foreign policy made by a small group of people who decide to go to settle someplace. Yes? Um, would you consider the, the significant settlement blocks in Ushetzion that are sort of uh, contiguous or so contiguous with sovereign Israel to be not the sort of revolutionary, you know, um, state taking apart, but actually effective and successful state building that in the end probably will be part of Israel. Uh, half of that. Uh, I think that a lot of the proposals that have been made, including during the negotiating process, have been for leaving some of those settlements in place. Uh, the reason has basically been to reduce the difficulty in the move, to reduce the trauma. At the point of the best proposals for negotiation, which was the Clinton parameters of January 2001, which were promptly forgotten because nothing with the first or the last name of Clinton gets considered in today's Washington. But the Clinton parameters laid out the idea that Israel would keep certain areas in the West Bank but would exchange that for land within Israel. That was the way of meeting uh, the Israeli request to keep land in the West Bank and the Palestinian demand to base the agreement on the pre-67 lines. That was the way of making these two seemingly impossible demands fit together. So in that sense, it is possible that a negotiated settlement would involve leaving some of those settlements in place. When I look at the history of those settlements, they are not any different than the rest of the story that I've talked about. They were accompanied by the same kind of uh, moves which the people involved thought I think sincerely were patriotic, were, were uh, in the name of the cause, were going to help the state of Israel, but ultimately uh, there was a constant process of uh, legal evasions, uh, and there was certainly a lot of lack of realism about the consequences of, of, of holding on to that. And one of the big issues with these settlement blocks is that they, in some ways, 
make Israel less secure because defending them means that, or keeping them and defending them means that you have these funny little tendrils of Israeli land sticking into the West Bank. And if part of our problem before 1967 was the narrow waste of Israel, creating new narrow wastes is not anything that's particularly advisable from a security point of view. From the point of view of simply reducing the clash over withdrawal, it might reduce the clash over withdrawal of some of those places where we're left where they are. There's somebody way back there. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, after they were to, you know, vacate uh, the settlers' economy in those areas out of there, as you've Um, look, as I said, Israel absorbed a million immigrants in the 1990s. It's indeed a densely populated area. I don't think that means that we've uh, lost our potential for absorbing immigration. It means that you know, you're basically talking about a very urban country, something that looks more like, um, I don't know, Singapore or Holland than it looks like uh, Canada. But uh, I, I don't really, I mean, that... Those are planning questions which I think can be uh, met in a better or worse fashion. I mean, we could also have a long discussion about the politics of planning in Israel, but that's a separate issue. The, the, the problem here is not the ability to absorb population. The problem here is the ability to move population because people went to those settlements with the belief that what they were doing was the right thing and that it, that it either served Israel or it either served God's purpose or served both of those things. And now it is a crisis to, to have to move, as we saw during the Gaza withdrawal. And that's, you know, that's a, an unavoidable corollary of any kind of separating of the two populations. Yeah. yeah uh, two questions related to the same issue you just brought up. What have we learned from the Gaza withdrawal, and what is your thought on the unilateral uh, method that the government used in Gaza and will use the West Bank to, to solve the problem since they don't seem to have it? They don't believe they have a partner on the other side to negotiate. But first, what did we learn from Gaza? Well, uh, one thing is that we learned that with careful preparation, uh, the Israeli police and army could use low-level, nonviolent means to deal with crowd control, civil protest, even violent civil disobedience. Um, this had always been a problem in Israel before. There was massive training for the withdrawal, including desensitizing the soldiers by taking other soldiers and having them play the part of settlers and screaming horrible things at them for hours until they could put up with it. And in fact, the soldiers and methods were found, including the fact that like, if a soldier looked like he was going to lose it, his commander would say, all right, you're at the back now, and bring in somebody else to take their place. So one lesson is that riot control can be done. Um, a second lesson was that the bureaucratic framework had a lot of problems dealing with it. It would have to be improved. Though part of the problem there, and this comes back to what I said before, is that until the day of the withdrawal, the majority of the Gaza settlers had convinced themselves it would not happen. And that, that's the psychological difficulty. I mean, there, the, one of the main rabbis who was touting their cause, a former chief rabbi of Israel, said, Hayo lotia, it will not come to pass. And people believed that. And... You know, afterwards, one of the things that was very interesting is on the first day of school this year at my daughter's Orthodox high school in Jerusalem, they had a big discussion of all the girls, uh, you know, it was a girls' high school about the withdrawal, and one of the main complaints is the rabbis fooled us. 
that there was this crisis of leadership that the rabbis had promised that it wouldn't happen, and these were kids who respected rabbis and what had happened to the leadership. So there, this precipitated a major crisis in the community, and a lot of the blame has been slung at everybody else, and the tension level has increased since then, not decreased. Uh, in terms of unilateralism, I didn't think doing it unilaterally was a good idea beforehand. It meant that that Israel received no diplomatic dividend from pulling back, and it also meant that there was no agreed governing authority in the Gaza Strip afterwards, and that contributed to the chaos afterwards. As far as what will happen next, I can only tell you what has happened so far. Uh, if you had asked me at the point of the election three years ago when Ariel Sharon was re-elected Prime Minister of Israel, if he would pull out of the Gaza Strip, I would have advised uh, certain very strong drugs to treat your condition. Um, the only thing that can be expected in the region that I live in is the completely unexpected. The only law is the law of unintended consequences. And whether or how Omert and his government will handle the situation, I can't say. This is why I've stressed the election results in terms of what they say about where the Israeli electorate is today and not what the state of Israel is going to do tomorrow because you've got a better chance on the slots than predicting that. Um, I th there's lots of questions here. I'm going to try to just take two or three more because everybody's also sitting here. And if I don't get to you, don't feel insulted. I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards. There's somebody sitting back there. Thank you. Uh, you know, Hamas has now been selected as head of the Palestinian government. Right. What's, what is, has been Israel's reaction to that? And also, how does this affect this area that you're talking about? Okay, Hamas... Uh, won the Palestinian elections, even though it had considerably less than a majority in the popular vote. You know, we sort of recalled Al Gore's famous statement that every American child should be able to dream of growing up to win the popular vote. Um, the, because of the, 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 the way that the election system was put together in the Palestinian territories, and also because Fatah, which had been the, the ruling party, split in the election, uh, Hamas won with 44% of the vote. That creates a tension between where the majority of the public is and where the government is. Hamas is very aware of this, and also Hamas, I have to say, was shocked by winning. They had, they had no expectation of winning. They weren't planning on it. They hadn't entered the elections to win because they didn't want the responsibility of governing. And, and they're, they're in the position, remember, this is an Islamic hardline party. You could call it the Islamic right. It's a part, it, and if you can imagine somebody who's from the Christian right suddenly being told that job you applied for and you just got and you signed a four-year contract on it includes funding Planned Parenthood. That, <laughs> that is the position that Hamas finds itself in ruling the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority was set up under the Oslo Accords, which Hamas completely objects to. They intended to be a fighting opposition and they found themselves in power. And since the election, they've been in an ideological crisis of how to deal with this, and under strong pressure not only from Israel and from the West, but from their own public. So a very open question is what will happen to Hamas as a result of this, and that in turn has an impact on how Israel will handle the situation. If Hamas maintains its position that it won't accept a two-state solution and that it won't accept Israel's existence, I think that it's inevitable that when Israel pulls back, it will be unilateral. But I don't think that it's inevitable that just because that's the state of Palestinian politics today, that's what it's going to be like a month or a year from now. That would be, uh, we're dealing here with politics, not geology. But I'm, living, I'm in California, I shouldn't talk about geology being so stable, but this is considerably less stable even than Californian geology. 
Yeah. Uh, what is the general consensus of the Israeli population to the withdrawal or not withdrawal? Well, what I can tell you is that the parties that favored withdrawal won 70 seats out of 120 in the Knesset. The right-wing party, Benjamin Netanyahu, whose campaign ads said in a scary, deep male voice, this is a referendum on Olmert's withdrawal plan, his party won 12 seats in the election, down from 38 the last time. And parties opposed as such to withdrawal won 24. The gap, the reason it doesn't add up to 120 is you also have other parties whose position on this is unclear. But if this were, in fact, a referendum on withdrawal, it is clear that withdrawal won a strong majority of the Israeli public. And I, I would just add that I think that this is very, very important to absorb in the diaspora because, you know, like, uh, there's sometimes a time lag here that the arguments that Israel has, been, has made 15 years ago are the ones that are remembered strongly among people who are honestly and sincerely trying to defend Israel, but it creates a gap between where Israel is today and, and some of its most dedicated diaspora supporters. So I think it's important to remember that out of a very realistic, pragmatic sense, the, state, the, the Israeli public has steadily moved to accepting the position and is now in the election strongly affirmed the position that Israel's future lies in getting out of at least a considerable part of the West Bank and that that's where it needs its support and help is to, is to carry out that out because that's the way to preserve a Jewish state. I'm going to call it quits here just because I'm tired of standing up here and I'm sure there's people who are tired sitting there. And I'm going to go over there to where the chairs are. And if other people want to meet, uh, the, the books are, if people want to go over there, that's fine. And thank you very, very, very much. Well.